You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jen Wilkin and JT English. And on today's episode, we're talking about complementarianism and really uh, what our vision for generous complementarianism is, both generous in that it's distinct uh, and it's okay that it's distinct from other expressions, interpretations, and applications of complementarianism, and also generous complementarianism in that we're trying to create fertile soil in our churches for both men and women to flourish. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Okay, well, um, so social media, huh? How how do you guys? It's been hot. Life giving. It is, right? So fun. Um, Ideas are, people's minds are always being changed. Yes. Engagement. Where we go for real dialogue. (laughs) Robust exchange of ideas. Now, you don't like the word robust. No, because it's Christianese. It's like engage mm. or uh, okay. what was the one you were using yesterday, JT? Robust. No, 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 no. Oh, it was, uh, 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 was it? Uh, intentional. Intentional. Yeah. 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 Intentional engagement with robust ideas. It was like intentional discipleship. Like as opposed to accidental discipleship. I said one of the things we should be doing is intentionally living with those around us. Yeah. And you're like, that's dumb. Instead of accidentally living with those around us. I hope it's not dumb. It is one of my sub points in the sermon this week. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk offline about about it because it's a a key part of what I'm trying to say this week. (laughs) No, so the new tagline for... Knowing faith, robust engagement with uh, an with intentional, intentional, robust engagement of ideas that we've marinated in. That are messy. Intentional. Oh, yeah. Make and sure you say messy. Messy. It's messy. It's beautiful, but it's messy. It's organic. Oh, hey, speaking of messy. Yeah. We got kind of a messy thing today, right? We do. And you just moved us out of banter. You're getting way better at that. Because you guys take too long. I know. That's We hear that. We just love talking. Love talking with y'all. Yeah, we do have ideas. Intentional, robust engagement with big, ide- big messy ideas today. No, we do. We do want to talk about something. I, frankly, we we had not planned to record this episode. Right. So we're, we're recording this episode because we were in a text message chain. I sent you a text and said, "Talk me off the ledge. Maybe we shouldn't do this." And yeah. then you guys talked me onto it. Yeah. Well, that's what so friend, we're going to do it. That's what friends Here are for. We are. So we're going to talk about it. So today we're talking about complementarianism, and uh, we're talking about I think a generous complementarianism. Um, we want to talk about this issue because one, it is like we want to acknowledge this is a bit responsible a bit reactive because there has been ongoing conversation, particularly on social media, about complementarianism and in particular women preaching, women elders in this whole conversation. And just to give you a little bit of historical context here for like how we kind of came to engage with this issue, it'd probably be good to hear a little bit about just the story of thinking through this topic together. So JT, kind of like what, like, because we, we didn't just start thinking about complementarianism a week ago right. or five days ago. Right. We, we, we started thinking about, this team actually started thinking about complementarianism four and a half, four and a half years ago. Well, we thought about it before that. Well, sure. We started trying to- It was to, kind of an intentional- Yeah, refine yeah. our thinking. Yeah, yeah so, so tell, I mean, tell a little bit about that. Well, for us at the village, and I would argue for anybody in the context of a local church, this is an issue that, that needs to hit the ground and the runway. This is not just about publishing the next book about complementarianism and gender roles. And it's certainly not about just talking about this from the academy as if it doesn't have real life implications. This matters 
matters for us because we are practitioners in the context of the local church. And we'd been influenced by the academy and influenced by books and we're trying to read them, but we realized some of these ideas weren't hitting the ground the way we needed them to. And so we decided to have our own conversation about what does complementary practice look like at the village church? Because we believe that the Bible paints a picture of human flourishing both for men and for women. And, and I, the reality is, and I think it's okay to say this, the village was a, was probably a church where one gender was, we, we had this vision of one gender flourishing, but the reality is neither genders were flourishing because complementary practice was not helping us actually live out the implications of the gospel. So the elders said, we need to write a paper and we need to reconsider policies and practices. So there was a team of us that was put together uh, along with elders and several of the staff. And ultimately in, in one way or another, the whole staff was involved in right. this process. Men and right. women. Men and women. Men I mean, I mean, everybody uh, had some kind of input or thought or idea about how we wrote this paper. We ended up writing over the course of 18 months, about a 60 page paper that engaged not exhaustively with every biblical text. It was not intended to, to be something that's published, but it was it was wrestling with the texts that we thought needed to be wrestled with uh, for us doing practice here. Right. And after 18 months, we came out with a policy and position paper. And what's been incredible is it worked. Yeah, we now have about three years of this under our belts. And um, I mean, we'll talk about some of the things that were sort of overarching principles that emerged for us. But this church is not the same as it was. And it is really exciting to see how the staff is in uh, just a much healthier place with one another, how um, the the men and women who just sit in the pews have a different understanding of what it means to be a part of the family of God than, than, than previously. And like we... When we decided to do this podcast today, like we never want you guys to think that we're going to be hot button issue people. Mm-hmm. Like I actually hate that so much. And so we really want you to know that this is not a new thought process for us. This mm-hmm. is something that we've thought about for a long time. Yeah. And we, we, and we've done an episode on this topic before. Well, that was one of the reasons I thought we needed to do this topic is like, who else? Like we've thought a lot about this. This is our moment to kind of speak yeah. about what God has done here. Yeah, it's not theoretical for us at this point. No, and I think that uh, on that note, it's not just that this team has thought about it, and I don't want to speak for you guys. I I actually think we've we've lived this. Yes. Like, as a team. I think knowing faith is an example of this, of what does it look like for men and women to do theology and discipleship together in the way Mm -hmm. that it was intended. Well, the need that exists to do it together. Mm -hmm. So So, uh, one thing I was going to say, too, is, is sometimes this conversation can be about uh, drawing lines of distinction really quickly and kind of setting up party borders and like putting a flag in the ground in order to set up, you know, each individual little kingdom of where somebody lands on one specific verse or one specific text. I think our hope in this podcast and on this topic in particular is to be more invitational right. and, and rather than building fences, build bridges, build a table for people to come together and say complementarian confession can work out a number of different ways in terms of application, in terms of a local ecclesial context. Yep. And we're going to get to that. Good. So, so you you might be listening to this and you're like, okay, I don't know what complementarianism is. So be, be blessed. What is compliment? <laughs> what is complementarianism? What is it? Jamie. I mean, you want me to do it? <laughs> all, we, we, just for the, like so, just so the audience knows, we all have a lot to say here. And so we're, we're like, we're, we're all like, who's going to go for it? JT's going to start. Yeah. I'll start. What is complementarianism? So complementarianism is this idea that both men and women are created in God's image. Uh, they are meant to reign and rule on his behalf, take dominion of the world. You think of like the cultural mandate, the Great Commission, that both men and women are invited into representing God to the ends of the earth. They're equal in dignity, value, essence. They are image bearers. They are distinct from each other and from the world around them, but more importantly, they share in common being 
humans. Yes. That is that is the first instinct of complementarity, that they image and represent God. So you think about Adam taxonomizing or ordering creation. He's speaking to uh, the animals and naming them. And, and Jen has been helpful to help me think through this. He's not naming them Fred and Alice. He's saying, that's a tiger, that's a giraffe. And he's right. saying, I am different from them. Yep. And then he meets Eve when Eve is created and he says, Oh my goodness, this person is same of my same, bone of my bones, mm-hmm. flesh of my flesh. She's according to my kind. Yes, yes. exactly yeah. right. And so complementarians, typically, uh, one of the first instincts can be what distinguishes men and women from each other. But the reality is, is the first instinct is what makes us same or like each other. Well, and let's sit there for just a second, because I think it's important for us to ask why historically the first impulse of complementarianism has been different instead of same. And I think that the honest answer to that, in my opinion, is that much of complementarian thought that was formulated in the early years was um, in response to third wave feminism. And so if you look at third wave feminism, which says there are, we're seeing the fruits of third wave feminism in our culture right now, that there is no distinction between uh, men and women. And then, you know, it goes even beyond there to all, all other kinds of ideas. Um, And so if that's the enemy, then you're going to lay all of your emphasis on, no, 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 men and women are not the same. Men and women right. are not the same. Men and women are not the same. And we we completely agree that men and women are not the same, but we would say that the Bible's first word is sameness, not yeah distinction and that that matters because if our emphasis is too heavily on distinction, then we begin to objectify one another instead of seeing each other as, um, as allies. Right. Yeah. And, and, and not just, uh, that's really good. I think you're right that we have to understand contemporary communication around complementarianism or what we understand complementarianism to be now is heavily shaped by that response. Right. And it, but it's not to say that complementarian doctrine was like <clears throat> that it didn't exist before right. contemporary right. complementarianism, right. but that it's most kind of vocal proponents of the last 35, 40 years mm-hmm. have been those who are responding mm-hmm. to some things that were going on in culture, namely third wave feminism. So they perceived a, a, an enemy to the left Yes, and they turned and they shouted to the left. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what we began to feel uh, in, in the village as we were walking through this process was we have turned our heads and shouted toward an enemy at the left, but is it possible that we're missing an enemy to the right that right. is slowly creeping our direction? And the answer was yes, certainly. Certainly in our case. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when we're thinking about complementarianism, that this is uh, that men and women are created in the image of God, uh, that they are equal in image bearing and worth and in dignity and value, and that the first kind of movement of Genesis 1 and 2 is the celebration of sameness of kind, Mm -hmm. that it's not men are from Mars and women are from Venus, which is typically how contemporary complementarism gets talked about. Mm -hmm. Like men are drastically different than women in Mm -hmm. almost every possible way, and that the extensions of that affect household, work, home, Mm -hmm. church, all those things, right? And that's outside the, I mean, that's outside the scope of the biblical text, especially if you just look at Genesis 1 and 2. The author is going to great lengths, like Mm -hmm. the greatest possible lengths to say that men and women are like each other and their primary role of taking dominion of the world Mm -hmm. is the same. They're supposed to go out and take dominion of the world together. And then his main point is they can't do it by themselves. And what what typically happens when when somebody from this camp comes to that cultural mandate is they'll go 
will be fruitful and multiply, cultivate and subdue. And then they'll talk to women about being fruitful and mm-hmm. multiplying and, and men about cultivating, cultivating and subduing. Cultivating. But it's not just sameness of kind. It's shared mission. Shared mission. This is given yeah. to both of them. They yeah. can't do it without the other. Exactly. Right. Which yeah. does mean that that's the next instinct of complementarianism. Certainly sameless, but also distinction. We do want to be as uh, we do want to be clear that distinction matters that men and women are not interchangeable yeah. in terms oh, of their sure. yeah. in terms of their uh, ontology that right. there is uh, different important differences that do distinguish men and women but it, it's not just distinction it's also sameness yeah and i mean the, but the clearest sign i mean just to put it like on a what should be a bi- fifth grade biology level the clearest differentiation is anatomical right mm-hmm. so when we're talking about distinction and difference and we're talking about complementarianism, and I actually feel like even those who might be <clears throat> further on one side of the spectrum than we are typically agree with this part. Kind of complementarians share yep. this value. Mm-hmm. Almost every complementarian is going to say, now whether their practice indicates this or not is another thing, but they're going to check yes to are both man and woman created in the image of God, and they're going to check yes to anatomical differentiation the genderedness mm-hmm. being a part of that, mm-hmm. right? Being that's a right. part of that distinction. Yep. That's kind of like, those are, if you're thinking about complementarianism, now this is not patriarchalism and it's not egalitarianism. Those are both not on the complementarianism spectrum, okay? They're still on the spectrum of uh, views Jeez, on these on. topics, but they're not on the spectrum of complementarianism. Um, but on that spectrum, people are going to agree. They're at least going to check yes. Men and women are both created in the image of God. And anatomical differentiation is a huge part of their distinctiveness, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So um, we've talked a little bit about this already, but I I don't want to get too far ahead because we told the story and then we kind of came back on complementarianism to try to give it just a broad definition. Why do, and we talked a little bit about why we care about this doctrine internally, but why why do we care about this doctrine? And maybe a good way to answer this is when you guys say, okay, this position and policy paper that we spent a lot of time working on that then came out in the village, it doesn't just sit somewhere, but it worked. Mm -hmm. What do you actually mean? What does it mean for a church uh, in our, in our view, to have healthy complementarian practice? Well, I think one of the things that emerged as we started getting closer to the text and getting into the, all of the arguments that are out there. And right. I mean, these are, I mean, these are, you know, to me, the, the exegesis piece was sort of like, I mean, you'll see if you start digging into this, the work's been done by a lot of people. And, and, but, and so then we can have a tendency to say, oh, well, since someone else has already done it, then I don't need to worry about it. I just need to pick whichever version of this sounds the most appealing to me. So we had to push against that impulse and really dig in and say, no, no, no we're going to get as close to the text as we can. And we began looking for sort of overarching frameworks yeah. because it felt like, okay, we can jump in and, and, and take each of these individual, and everybody could tell you what the passages are. You know, I mean, there they're, they're, they're are just a few passages that everybody runs to when they start talking about these things. And we were like, what if we zoomed out yeah. and said, what is the Bible telling us about the church? What is the Bible telling us about people? And, and what we landed on and not in five minutes by any stretch, but what we landed on was that it's painting for us a picture of family, that the church is the family of God, that the church is the true and better family, that your biological family probably wasn't for you. And And and, could never be no matter how good it is. That's right. And it's the family that you'll spend eternity with. Right. And and that the metaphors that pervade the New Testament that are coming out of the Old Testament archetypes are 
brothers and sisters, yep. one another, mothers and fathers, yep. um, and that a family, if you think about, you know, when we, and we celebrate family, like in conservative theological churches, we're all about the nuclear family. And, and, and we even uh, make it uh, sometimes hard on families that don't fit that. Like it's, it's hard for a single parent family sometimes to even plug into the local church because we have such a high view of what a nuclear family should look like, and I'm air quoting. Right. Uh, and so then, we, then we ask, well, so then, what should the family of God look like? Like, what is right. that that ideal um, picture? And it would be a family that has both fathers and mothers, and then brothers and sisters. Yep. Uh, and what we had found is that um, in at the village, and I would say, just based on my exposure to other churches that are like us, what we often had was not a brother-sisterly environment, but it was the men were over in in one area and the women were over in another area. And we didn't interact with one another because um, to do so was to break some unspoken barriers mm-hmm. of, oh, no, 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 no. Like, like men and women can't possibly inhabit the same spaces. Right. But but in, a, in an ideal nuclear family, what are you saying? You're saying, no, 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 that's a healthy family. A healthy right. family is when we interact with one another around mutual respect and affection. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the, so then we began, you know, asking questions about, we want our church to look like that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and the reason is, isn't just because, uh, I mean, certainly this, I mean, this, I think this idea of family was probably the most central takeaway for most of us as we talked about brothers and sisters, mothers mm-hmm. and fathers, but even pointing us back to the earliest chapters in Genesis, it's not good for one mm-hmm. gender to be alone. Mm-hmm. That's true of a family, uh, both nuclear and ecclesial, that if, if you're operating and practicing complementarianism in a way that men are, are the only ones kind mm-hmm. of uh, having re- taking responsibility, mm-hmm. helping teach and lead, or, uh, lead in the local church, mm-hmm. and there isn't kind of a corresponding uh, motherly influence in the life of the church, again, a, a father is a father and a mother is a mother. These roles are not interchangeable, mm-hmm. but it is actually going against the earliest chapters of Genesis and saying, oh, actually, it is good for them to be alone. Mm-hmm. They should be alone doing this yeah. by themselves. Well, yeah. and you think about like the emphasis on, like I think about the sort of the worst in- versions of this, how it can play out is you get this idea that rule and subdue is the man's job, right. fruitful and multiply is the woman's job. And then you decide, well, rule and subdue, that's that's the most important function of the church right. is that we that we wield authority, yes. right? And and then you end up with, um, and then if men and women are mutually exclusive, then you get this, oh, you know, well, we don't really know what women need, you know, from men right. in leadership. It's like, they're just so other that we don't yes. understand. But, and so we assume that whatever's happening over in that women's ministry over there is, uh, must be what women want because we can't understand it at all. Instead of saying, you know, men and women need some discipleship tools that yeah. are, that are that are not unique, and maybe they play out mm-hmm. in in ways that are expressed specifically within single gender environments, and and so the church then takes on this just lopsided, yeah. rules heavy, um, relationship weak. Women are their own special category that is incomprehensible to yep. men in leadership, and and that that's a pretty typical pattern you can see out there. It is, and you know it's funny because, and we'll get to this here in a little while, but uh, you know, there is fear around uh, engaging in some of the tension here because of a slippery slope. But I've actually found that the slippery slope is not um, uh, that that uh, complementarianism in the center, 
if we could say that, or what we're talking about in terms of our expression of complementarianism or a generous complementarianism, that the the slippery slope, there is one on conservative complementarianism, mm-hmm. and it's this. Uh, if extreme differentiation between men and women will lead to isolation of both parties. When you isolate both those parties, you will alienate them, and you will begin to objectify them. Yep. Uh, and, this is, and this is what you see. Even like um, some of the... Like uh, I think about the last couple of years and just seeing the explosion of some practices that were heavily taught at a seminary level to pastors and ministry for years mm-hmm. about how to handle people of the opposite sex mm-hmm. and then institutions where those things were rule. Mm-hmm. And what happens? Well, when they become so isolated, so alienated, so right. so other, mm-hmm. well, then you objectify them. Mm-hmm. And then they become something that is a means to an end. That's exactly right. And not as a shared well, part. We miss the humanity. Women become a burden yeah. to the church mm-hmm. instead of allies. Right. Because we're, you know, we're a risk factor instead of part of the family. Right. That's right. So one of the key implications that I'm hearing, just to kind of surmise, is that we, uh, there was a desire to see a greater brother sister culture in the life of our church mm-hmm. and that we, we felt like there was something missing. And just to be clear here, um, at least internally here, I'm not saying everywhere, but I do think that there is a caricature. There's a scarecrow out there that the people that really want to see this move into places that I would say, uh, are more representative of the places of tension in scripture are just women who want more power. Right. Yeah. This is this has blown my mind for as long as I've been a woman in ministry in conservative theological circles. The suspicion is that we secretly want to preach, that we want to take over. You know, like that. It's just it's a power grab, and that if you give them an inch, they'll take a mile. And and there's no there seems to be very little room for thinking. And that's because it's all it's all fear based, right? Like it's this is a slippery slope. Like if you make a move this direction, you will absolutely slide off the cliff and become a third wave feminist. Mm -hmm. And it's like. What we've seen is, no, that that's not actually true. It's not even close um, to true. There are denominations for that. Yeah. Right, for sure. Right. Well, this is a crack up for me. I've told you guys this, like when, when, when I've met with that whole, you know, well, she probably just wants to be a pastor. It's like, you could be if, if you I wanted, wanted to, to be a pastor, I'd walk across yeah. the street to the Methodist <laughs> church and be a pastor. Like, sure. I don't want that. Yeah, and there's a, there's a hubris, too, in the thought that, man, women uh, just want to say something, and that's why they want more power here. The hubris uh, on the side of many who make that argument is that there's nothing to learn. I'll mm-hmm. tell you, when, as that's this right. issue began to move forward for us, it wasn't uh, – uh, our, our elder room is only male. Yep. But what became uh, what became clear to them over the course of this study, and what I think is beginning to trickle into the culture of our church in a good way, was not ju- it was not a group of men who were like, "Listen, we got to settle this question so we can set the right boundaries to keep women in check." It's that they began to see. I began to see that there was very strong things that we were not learning mm-hmm. because our sisters were not a part of the conversation. That's exactly. It was, so it was not, a single gender house. It was yeah. a single parent household. Right. So it's, this is sometimes the way that this is even talked about is. Man, churches want to do this as a pat on the head to ambitious women. Right. That's that is actually uh, one. If they're doing it, it's foolish that way. But two, that's actually not been our story here. No. It's people going. You know what? I feel like we're missing something. Mm-hmm. And everybody going. Like, oh, I wonder. I wonder what's missing. And looking around the room and going like, <laughs> hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's like oh, maybe some of our sisters are missing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so maybe they've been gifted to help yeah. mm-hmm. and to shape the life of the church. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, so we're, well, like ahead, you wouldn't write, you wouldn't write or, or establish a position on race in a room that was populated only by 
white one men. Ra- or one race. Yeah, you would you would invite people of another race into the conversation, and so you wouldn't develop a a position on women without talking to women. What? Well, that that's how we feel, and yeah. I think that's a good place to be. That is not where some people are. Right. Yeah. Some yeah. people are. And so let's talk about theological method and complementarianism. Yes. I know. You're always ready for I'm this. I'm just waiting. So uh, one, of the, uh, one of the things that kind of started this conversation was an article. And in that article, there is a, there's a few different arguments that are employed. Yep. There is one argument that exists underneath the surface of that. It's yep. not stated explicitly. And, uh, but there's a tip of, the, tip of the hat to it. Oh, there is. There's a nod to it. Um, and, uh, and so let's talk a little bit about why theological method, what theological method is. Let's just get that out there. Yeah. Uh, and then how it should play a role in this conversation on complementarianism. Uh, this is this is a thorny topic, so we're going to have to do some complex conversation, but we're going to try to keep it as simple as we can because Jen is in the room mm-hmm. and she's going to make us. Uh, theological method is how do you appropriately draw conclusions from the Bible? Like how do you, how do you say things are true based upon how God has revealed himself in the text? Uh, is it a one-to-one? Uh, that's probably not, even, not in the best way to say it. Theolo- let's just leave it there. Theological method is how do you draw conclusions from how God has revealed himself? Yeah. Period. Yeah. And so you're trying to work through it now. And like uh, when you're learning theological method, you'll learn a lot of like little tips. Mm-hmm. Like, so like, let me just give you one basic one that a lot of people are familiar with when it comes to theological method. When you're looking at passages in scripture that are more clear, you typically use the passages where there's greater clarity right. to interpret passages where there's less clarity. Mm-hmm. That's typically one kind of very practical on the ground tip for theological method. Mm-hmm. Another practical tip for theological method is that we should take into account what the church historic and global has affirmed as as the bare, like the basic essentials of the Christian faith. Yeah, that's yeah. a big part of it. It's, it's massive because, and and not only because we think, oh man, I wonder if they had some good ideas, but because it's a uh, spirit-driven way to do theological method. Right. What we don't want to assume is that that the spirit stops working at Pentecost or shortly thereafter, and then began working in Flower Mound, Texas in 2019 right. in order to help us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But actually saying, oh, Jesus said that the spirit was coming to lead us into all truth, to remind us of things that Jesus has said, to, to come out on his own authority, but to actually say those things that which he hears from the Father and the Son. So the spirit has been guiding the church global into truth for 2,000 years, and that we can learn both from the uh, mistakes and from the ways that the church got it right over the past 2,000 years. And so like an example of that, just to, to, to highlight, I think what's going on here is things like the, the Council of Nicaea or right. the Council of Chalcedon or the Reformation, that the church has already engaged in some of these theological conversations and we can benefit greatly from our brothers and sisters who've preceded us. That's good. So let's uh, let's do two things. One, I want to talk about uh, theological method as it kind of shaped the way that we thought about this paper. So essentially, actually how, you th- how we thought about drafting this, yeah. like what kind of work that you actually did, because yeah. I think that will be kind of indicative of how we arrived where we did uh, and how we think is a good play, a good way to arrive uh, at where we did on complementarianism. And then I want to talk about Trinitarianism yep. in, in light of this argument. There's actually a line that we used and we talked right. about theological method. We said this, we said, we think this is a, a project of constructive pastoral theology. So in other words, we're not just trying to react to something outside, but we're trying to actually build a, a positive vision of what it looks like for men and women to flourish here. In order to do that, we want to employ exegetical methods, which means we're going to engage with the biblical text as best we can. We're going to engage with historical uh, arguments over complementarianism. 
And then we're also going to do theolo- uh, build on theological and pastoral resources in order to build a consistent view of gender and complementarity. So in other words, those are the sources yep. that we want to avail ourselves of or make available to us. Uh, the Bible, historical, theological, and pastoral resources in order to shape the vision of this paper. Yeah. And there's nothing novel about that no, approach. That, that is, this that is, is kind of like, this is the industry standard, so yes. to speak, yeah. when exploring an issue. Theology right. doesn't reward novelty often. Right. No, <laughs> it's true. It's true. And so what, what, uh, that means that when, um, when we were thinking about complementarianism here, um, that what we're trying to do is going, okay, we want to look at what the biblical text says. The Bible is the authoritative revelation of who God is. Right. The church has been uh, uh, considering the biblical text for the past 2,000 years, and it's being applied in a local church context. Right. That's what we're saying. Yes, that's it. And so there are some ways of thinking through, arguing what I would say, arguing to and from complementarianism and the spectrum of complementarianism, because we uh, this is a good time to just say again, uh, complementarianism is a spectrum. Mm-hmm. We, uh, the Three people in this room, and then the church uh, that that uh, that we're a part of the village church, mosaic, mosaic church. church. We we are a we're representative of a place on the spectrum of complementarianism. We would call it a generous complementarianism. Yeah, I think that's a good way to say it. Um, good. Well, I don't know because it makes it sound like there are stingy versions. I think I think what we mean when we say that is we should hold whatever place we land within complementarianism with generosity, yes. as we would any that's secondary what, that's what I'm issue. To say. Yes, yeah, that's good. yeah, that we don't understand complementarianism. Uh, as a it's, first it's, order issue. It's an acknowledgement that this is actually a very difficult issue, yep. that there is a great deal of discussion around it. Yes. And I think particularly, this is one of the things we want to do on the podcast for issues, not just this one, but other secondary issues as well, is say, we recognize that the church is entering into a time period where, um, where infighting is going to, uh, where we should always talk about doctrine. There should always be healthy discussions around it in places where we agree and disagree, but where we need to begin to sound the note of unity around what are the most important issues. And so that's why we, part of the reason we wanted to do this um, particular episode was to say there ought to be graciousness in yeah. these conversations mm-hmm. charity and this is uh, before we get to the one more the next step in theological method just to introduce maybe one more category for our listeners it's the category of theological triage that's what you're talking yes. about jen right, right is right. that there are first second third and fourth order issues and so and a, a good example for triage is if you think about an emergency room and a patient comes into emergency room and they've got three or four different injuries mm-hmm. one being a gunshot wound another being a broken finger and the third being a hangnail that needs to be addressed for yeah. some reason those are three different types of injuries that should be should be addressed in order one is egregious and if you don't address it it's going to be destructive perhaps life-threatening another one is painful but the person's going to be probably just fine and the third is really not that big deal at all the big deal a big deal at all sometimes evangelicals forget to do theological triage and we we create we uh treat doctrinal and theological issues that are actually just small broken fingers or hangnails or things that need to be talked about that we think the Bible addresses that we actually have positions on, yeah. but we treat them as if they're gunshot wounds. For sure. And that and uh, and <clears throat> that typically happens in places, just frankly, where people are not close to the pastoral needs of a community. It's, that is every, almost every single time I've addressed it, it's that. Yeah. So like, let me just give you an example. Complementarianism is underneath doctrine of humanity. Mm-hmm. So like we would say complementarianism is a, like a sub-doctrine under doctrine of humanity. You know what a first order issue is for doctrine of humanity? image bearing right mm-hmm. you, you lose image bearing mm-hmm. you lose everything everything mm-hmm. it's gone and the consequences pastorally of losing image bearing are astronomical mm-hmm. like 
we, I mean, we, we uh, historically, the greatest atrocities committed in the world and being committed in the world are transgressions against God, against image bearing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a first order concern. If somebody's stepping to the plate and they're going, hey, we deny image bearing, I go, okay, you're going to have some, you're going to have some real issues. Yep. Like that's a first order concern. Well, and I'll just throw it out there. One of the ways that I see complementarianism break down and, and run into error is when it teaches women as subhuman. People actually People say actually, this. You and I sat in a room where we heard it taught, yes. you know, where it's like, um, you know what the created order is? It's the man and then the woman and then the animals and then the plants. Yes. And it's like, hang on a second. Like if the woman is not fully human, it's no wonder that, that these, these problems arise in the church where uh, abuse is overlooked mm-hmm. or where um, uh, the, the unique discipling or, or ministerial counseling needs of women are, are, are sidelined. You know, like we're fully, and our contributions, there is no image of God fully imaged without the woman being created. Mm-hmm. And the second, the second human created is not a man. Yeah. Like, like God does not create, pardon the expression, does not create an elder board for Adam right mm-hmm, out of the right. gate. He gives him the woman. Yeah. Boom. See, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> what bridge is God calling you to cross that the gospel might go forth among the nations? Women like Lilius Trotter, Harriet Newell, and Sarah Hall Boardman Judson have indeed crossed their own bridges to get to the lost. Discover the stories of 10 inspiring female missionaries who changed the world for Christ. 10 Women Who Changed the World is seminary president Daniel Aiken's powerful tribute to these women who fulfilled the Great Commission. May we all follow in their footsteps. 10 Women Who Changed the World is available wherever books are sold. Do you ever get stuck wondering how to study a Bible passage? The Courage for Life Study Bibles for Women and the Courage for Life Study Bibles for Men have over 1,400 Bible studies. That's a Bible study on every page of Bible text. Access to the Filament Bible app lets you dive even deeper. If you download the app and you scan the page number, you can open up a world of resources, including over 25,000 additional study notes, hundreds of videos, and a full audio Bible. Start discovering at CourageForLifeBible.com. That's CourageForLifeBible.com for incredible study notes and an incredible study Bible. Let's talk about... I'm just going to sit over here and exhale for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's talk about Trinitarianism. Yeah, we were supposed to do that like five minutes ago. That's here fine. We go. This we're is going to be, this gonna be a long linear, episode. Super but super linear. This is going to be long. It, it, needs, it, it needs to be long. It's a big, it's a big idea. We, we're passionate about it. Let's talk about Trinitarianism and this argument because uh, the... Uh, the <clears throat> let's just kind of rewind here. Mm-hmm. Um, a big part of contemporary, early contemporary, and it, it, it persisted, uh, communication conversation theory around complementarianism, at least the contemporary applications of complementarianism, uh, had, uh, not across the board, but in some camps, had a theological substructure underneath it yep. that was directly tied to God's being. Yep. Uh, and uh, a few years ago, that kind of came to a head at a big conference yeah. that evangelicals have called the Evangelical Theological Society, um, where a lot of those arguments were discussed openly. Right. Um, and, and the, the reason compliment, I get, just to even highlight the theological reasoning of this, yeah. what were the instincts we said of complementarianism so far? Sameness yeah. and distinction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So early complementarians were thinking, where else do we see this? Yeah. 
in God. Yeah. We see that God is one essence and three distinct persons. Therefore, I wonder if we can couch complementarianism into the doctrine of God. Yeah. And instead of taking a picture, uh, like a picture of divine fellowship and going like, oh, this is reflective of that. Mm -hmm. What they did was they tied it to the ontology or the being or the relationships between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So let's talk a little bit about what kind of argument is typically put forward and why do we find that problematic? Yeah, so the argument that's put forward is that in God, we see one essence, three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that the Son in the incarnation takes upon a human flesh. So this gets into Trinitarianism and Christology, what we're always trying to do and trying to do well. And the idea is that when the Son takes upon or assumes upon himself a human nature, that he now is one person, but two distinct natures. And then there are New Testament texts that talk about the Son, or Christ, the one who is both God-man, submitting to the Father. You see him uh, requesting of the Father, not my will be done, but yours be done. Or he learns and he submits. And so what you had is you had a group of complementarianism, uh, complementarians develop a theological position related not to complementarity, but to the doctrine of God. And this is really important, called the eternal functional subordination of the son. And we talked about that a little bit on the show. A little bit, but just to redefine it, what it meant was is that the son who assumed upon himself a human nature and was submitting through his human will to the father and being actively obedient to the father's will for him, they applied that to the divine will and kind of uh, protracted that all the way back into the divine life, even before the created order to say, look, the son has always been submitting to the father. And that is massively problematic for Trinitarian theology and actually runs against Nicene orthodoxy, uh, I would argue. Uh, I'm not saying that they're heretics, but it is a heterodox position. And why? Because it denies Nicaea of the one essence of God. So God himself doesn't have two or three wills in order for one to be submissive to the other. He only has one will. It is the will of God because God is one. And so they were breaking up this one essence of God in order to try to come to a specific position or make their position of complementarity more authoritative. At At a place where they typically will point here is they'll go, well, didn't the father send the son? Uh, And they'll say, well, if the father sent the son, then like clearly the son is submissive to the will of the father, right? And that's a misunderstanding of what we call the, the processions or the relationships between the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. That the uh, father is eternally unbegotten, the son is eternally begotten, and the spirit is, is eternally proceeding from the father through the son. Uh, and so the sending of the son is not indicative of the son's submission to the father. It's indicative of the shared... Well, the of inseparable operations that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are moving together in this act of redemption, and that the Father sending the Son, and the Father and the Son sending the Spirit is not like, "Hey, Spirit, we really need you to do this for us," right. even though you'd rather do something else, right? Or, "Hey, Son, I need you to do this for me. I'd be really proud of you if you could pull it off." That's right. It's the divine fellowship saying, uh, "We are going to do this together." This is not just for the record. This is not. <laughs> This is not a debated point. No, like it is, it is universally accepted <laughs> over the past two, I guess, 1700 years of, of right. church history. And what is, so here's what is for me just bananas is you have a group of people who are getting kind of maniacal about a very specific position related to complementarity, planting their flag in the ground and saying, 
this way or no way over my dead body. Here I stand. I can do no other. Right. While redefining what the church has actually done that over exactly. the doctrine of God. Yeah. And so while they're trying to redefine and broaden historic orthodoxy that has been accepted across every single tradition, this is not just an evangelical position. Yeah. This is what every Christian everywhere has said about the doctrine of God. They're comfortable redefining that and saying, actually, we should be broader here. The doctrine of God is up for revision. Right while creating a much narrower and limited position of complementarity than has ever been addressed and calling that orthodoxy. And it's unnecessary. So it's not just like, it's just, it's not just unprecedented. It's not just unhelpful. It's unnecessary. You don't need, you don't need the Trinitarian engine to have complementarianism. That's exactly right. So I think one of the things that I'm trying to highlight here is this concept we talked about a few minutes ago of theological triage is that Trinitarianism and complementarianism are not at the same level theologically. Yes. One is an issue of orthodoxy. One is an issue of dis- of like theological distinctive. It's something that comes after. Yes. This is the gunshot wound versus the, the, the you know, maybe broken finger or right. whatever it might be. But evangelicals are not treating it that way. We're acting right. as if one is more important than the other so that will actually revise the primary in order to have the secondary issue. And I, this is uh, this is just important for us to think about in terms of our own tradition that, that we are okay revising the doctrine of God, what has been commonly accepted for almost 2,000 years, while uh, uh, creating kind of more rigidity and narrowness over a secondary issue. Right. And so one of the things that we talked about at the Village Church is that if we are willing to, to emphasize a certain practice of complementarianism more than we're willing to emphasize Trinitarianism, we're running the very real risk, and I want to say this as clearly as I can, of creating Unitarian complementarian, complementarians, and that is a discipleship loss. Yeah. Like, that is a big deal. If we're creating people who are discipling people who don't understand basic Christian orthodoxy, but they understand what it means to be a, a man and a woman in accordance with complementarianism that's a loss. I would rather have an egalitarian Trinitarian than I would have a Trinitarian complementarian. So uh, this is this is an uh, article written by Steve Holmes at St. Andrews University, and he is interacting with, with these ideas where he's trying to talk about the relationship between Trinitarianism and eternal functional subordinationism. I want to read the conclusion of his article because I think he gets it exactly right. He says, I've argued that the central Trinitarian doctrine of the unity of God necessarily excludes any meaningful account of subordination. That's what the eternal functional subordination position is arguing, that the son is eternally subordinate to the father. I want to say as clearly as he does here, that is outside of the Christian tradition. There is no authority, there is no submission or an account for eternal functional subordination within anything that's recognizably orthodox Trinitarianism. So he goes on to say that it may be that those who are arguing for eternal functional uh, subordinationism are right. Maybe that is what the Bible's teaching. But if they are right, then what we also have to say is that what was recognized as classical Christianity, classical Trinitarianism, is actually unorthodox and inevitably unbiblical. You cannot have both. Right. Either eternal functional subordination is biblical and Nicaea, Chalcedon, are not, or the opposite is true. These two positions are at odds and cannot be reconciled. Right. And again, it's not a matter of us saying um, uh, you can't have complementarianism without EFS, eternal functional subordination. No, that's what we're saying. We have it. We have it. And you can have it. And I think the church has had it for a long time. For a long time. Um, what we're saying is that this, uh, this is a, at the very least, it is a highly risky, unnecessary 
that? Yes, yeah. it is destructive for the church today and the church that's coming right. to rewrite the doctrine of God. Right. Okay, now I'm going to move to something in addition to doctrinal problems. Great. We talked about being generous with one another on secondary or tertiary issues. And I think that the most common um, shot that is fired out there when you're talking about secondary issues is um, this is about biblical faithfulness yeah. and your position is biblically unfaithful. Right. And by definition, a secondary or tertiary issue is all of us acknowledging it is difficult to determine what is biblically faithful and we are doing our best. Yes. And so um, when there's disagreement, it is one thing to say, this person is being unfaithful to the text. It is another thing to say, as best as I read this, I am being faithful to the text and this person's reading is not my reading. Right. That is different. Yes. And so I think a lot of the heat, light and heat around this conversation is in this accusation that if you land here versus here, you're being biblically unfaithful. Right. And so that's where I think we can develop a graciousness with one another. The assumption is, oh, well, you did bad exegesis. Right. And, um, and now certainly there, there, are, there are better ways to do exegesis than others. Yep. But um, anything that's been shouted about long enough, you can guess that there is a lot of um, disagreement about those elements. And so then what happens is it becomes a matter of conscience. Yep. You do your best to land in the place that you believe you can stand before the Lord and give an account for where you've landed. And I think that's the thing that I was most, um, it was most heartwarming to me mm -hmm. in the process that the village went through was um, we're going to, we're going to shut out the static. We're going to stop lobbing around the term biblical faithfulness, the way that it's been lobbed around. And we're going to say for this church. And I think that's what you've seen JD Greer say. I think that's what you've seen some other people who are trying to um, filter this conversation properly for our church, the one we will give an account for what, what work are we going to do around this text? Mm -hmm. Not, not whose book are we going to read about? Right. I mean, obviously, Obviously, you're going to seek other sources, but but what work are we going to do around uh, around intellectual honesty about mm -hmm. where we fall on this issue yeah. so that whatever we present to our church and we live out in the context of our church, we're prepared to give an answer to the Lord. That's so good, Jen. Especially, I love the term you just use of intellectual honesty. Anybody who says, I, th I think of like a passage like 1 Timothy 2, mm -hmm. 12, which is a passage that's mm -hmm. often cited here. Look, we're being biblically faithful to the text. Mm -hmm. Anybody who tells you that it that that text is abundantly clear, just look at the text, mm -hmm. is being intellectually dishonest. Yes. Yes. Well, we don't do that with baptism. Right. right. I mean, historically, yeah. there there have been times where that's been the case. But like, we're all like, hey, I'm cool with the way you baptize people. You know, even yeah. though it's not what I, you know, I get that you did the work and this is your mm -hmm. your well formed position. But around this issue. And even conservatives recognize that. Tom Schreiner yeah. was, a, was a helpful resource for us as we walked through this text. And speaking of 1 Timothy 2, he says this, scholars debate virtually every <laughs> single word. Mm -hmm. Phil Riken goes on to say, put simply, this passage defies simple answer. Mm -hmm. right. <laughs> and, and these are conservative, like stalwart theologians. Yeah. They're incredible, but, but they're being intellectually honest and saying, yeah. guys, this is really hard. Yeah. Well, we, need, yeah. we, need to, we need to do this prayerfully. We need to do this together. We do need to draw conclusions. Yes. That, that, are, that make sense for local church contexts. But anybody who comes to you and says, First Timothy 2, just look at it, it's easy, mm -hmm. they're being intellectually dishonest. It's true. And so there are specific passages, and First Timothy 2 is probably one of the more pronounced ones, that are often treated with like, uh, in this conversation, as oh, this is abundantly clear one way or the other when it's not. So that's a problem. But there's also bigger topics. Like one of the topics that just... 
I don't know how many books, how many articles I've read on preaching in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And uh, I want to say at the beginning, uh, as a pastor, I preach regularly. I think that the preaching of God's word is very significant. Mm -hmm. I think that there is biblical precedent for the task of instruction in sound doctrine and in preaching to the gathered body. And I think it it should accompany the table. So, those are some settled convictions I have, but there is enough ink spilled on the curious nature of what preaching actually is to say, uh, you know, if you're speaking, saying, well, preaching in the New Testament is c- very clear about what it is and who was allowed to do it or not, I have, I, I'm going to have a struggle with that. Mm-hmm. I think that you can say, hey, based off of what I've seen in the New Testament, I think that preaching is reserved for the office of elder, or I don't. But you can't say that the scope of what preaching is is abundantly clear. It is definitely not. We do not have a clear picture of everything that was happening in the corporate worship gathering every week. We don't have it. We have some principles. Our traditions have formed our liturgies and our convictions around ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, and what offices should be held by what people, what qualifies somebody to hold one of those offices, and what the applications of those offices are. But something like preaching, which it was very much in the conversation, and even in the articles, this is why <clears throat> this is why uh, so much of what the initial article said that kind of started it was unhelpful was a conflation of preaching and teaching, mm-hmm. a conflation of audiences. So you get this really broad brush approach. And I think it was really conflated because there was an unwillingness to say what the understated implicit thing was, which is that women should not be leading in a church. Right. End of discussion period in any mixed gender environment. Mm-hmm. And I think there was an unwillingness to say that plainly. And so it was conflated with the issue of teaching and preaching in a mixed gender group. And that really buys into a, uh, an, um, a equivocation between leadership and the offices of the church, which is not an equivocation that scripture makes. Well, if leadership is masculine and submission is feminine, you know, then right. you have these yes. n- neat categories. If, if, if that. We don't <clears throat> right, hold that. Right. We don't obviously hold the that. Bible doesn't teach that. You think of right. like Mary's song or Hannah or Deborah mm-hmm. or the or the, the preaching mm-hmm. of the resurrection. Like mm-hmm. clearly the women mm-hmm. were contributing to the theological dialogue of Israel and of the early church. And the exceptionalist argument, because somebody will, you'll throw that out there and somebody will be like, well, those are exceptions Exception. to the norm. The reason that that actually doesn't work is because they're exceptions to the norm. They were incredibly countercultural, incredibly radical, and they would have delegitimized scripture if not seen to be of grave consequence to include. Right. So it's uh, there is a problem. I don't know, Kyle. That's a slippery slope. <laughs> <laughs> I disagree. I feel like... I feel like, uh, you know, what, what we'll do a lot of times is um, we'll go, well, uh, women were the first witnesses to the resurrection. And people will uh, uh, often say, well, yeah, well, you know, one of the reasons why that's there is to kind of prove the veracity of the resurrection and blah, 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 that, man, it would have had no standing in the court of law. But then they'll turn around, the same kind of person who will employ that argument and turn around and say, well, women speaking or teaching or leading anywhere in the scope of scripture was an exception because men were faltering or failing. And you go, whoa, whoa, hold on. You can't have it both ways. Mm -hmm. Were women being used to glorify God in a culture in which their testimony would have been admissible and it was controversial, they were the first witnesses? Or was this an exception to the rule because men were failing? Well, not only that, but I think that these contributions that women make are 
they are uniquely female. Mm-hmm. Like they're not interchangeable contributions. Even That's you right. look at the That's classic so example of exceptionalism, which is Deborah, mm-hmm. right? And when Deborah it, it gives her song um, describing the way the state of Israel at the time that she becomes a judge, she says, you know, the the the, the roads were not safe. Nothing. Everything had fallen to to ruin. Um, and then she says, and then until I arose a mother in Israel. She does not say until I arose a surrogate father Mm. or a, you know, or, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's that she, she mothers Israel. There is something unique in her leadership that has a mothering quality to it. And, and I think that's what we're, you know, you would never look at a nuclear family um, and, and say, oh, well, that's a family where um, dad goes into the bedroom and makes all of the decisions and comes out and announces them to the mom. And then the mom just says, thank you. I submit to that. Like that would be a super unhealthy nuclear yes. family. And so we don't want the, 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 the local church family to look like that either. Mm-hmm. It yeah. should be a place of mutual respect and dialogue. And are there, is there um, an order to the way that the family is structured? Certainly. Of course. Um, but if we, if we fear losing order at the expense of having meaningful mutual interactions, then we're not a functioning family. That's right. Yeah. So you got to stand in the tension of places uh, 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 of the history of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, you got to stand in places certainly of the tension in the text. But you do have to land the plane yep. and some applications. Mm-hmm. And so if you've been listening to this, you, uh, depending on kind of what your background on this issue might be, you might be assuming that we have landed the place in certain spaces because of how we've approached this issue. But I think it would be good to just give some kind of like perspective on, and what we're about to tell you is not prescriptive for how no, we feel like every application of complementarianism should be. What we're saying is that in light of the history of the church, in light of uh, uh a theological triage in light of the tension of the text, uh, in light of the pastoral needs present in a local church, we uh, we have stepped into our position of complementarianism and our practice of it this way. Uh, and so, what are some things? Let me just kind of ask some questions here. What are um, uh, do uh, what offices of the church are available in our complementarianism practice? What offices of the church, deacon, elder, are available uh, to qualified men and women? Which one? At the village? Yeah. Yeah, so the office of elder is available to qualified men. The office of deacon is available to, to both qualified men and qualified women. Okay, so let me ask a couple of questions there. Uh, does that mean that every man pes- possesses authority over every woman, over every, every woman, because they can hold the highest office in the life of our church? No. Men do not preach at the village church. Qualified men who, who uh, aspire or, or hold and uh, meet the qualifications of elder those are the kinds of men who preach at the village church. Those are the kinds of men who hold a specific kind of authority at the village church. Great. So it's it's not uh, it's not just any man is qualified to be an elder. No. It's that there are qualified men who can serve in the office of elder. And it's a, and we've recognized them and we've authorized and ordained them to do so. That's great. Uh, now, uh, can uh, women serve in leadership in the life of our church? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. What are ways that women lead? What office do they hold? Uh, in the life of our church and what things do they do? Anything that does not require a pastor elder to be um, holding that particular role can and we would even say should be something that either a man or a woman is is considered for. So like in a hiring process, and this is an interesting thing that came out as we were trying to implement this, is we began to realize that um, that we did all of our connections were were you know like when a when a role opened up on staff we had historically put men into those roles as a reflex because you know it just it was it made sense and also that was who we knew those yeah. were the qualified uh, candidates that we knew and so even beginning to say oh well hang on the um what would be an example 
JT, give me an example on our staff of a role that a woman has been like. Connections minister? Connections minister. For years, groups. Yeah, or, or groups minister. Like for years, it was like, well, that would be a guy because, I mean, he can become a pastor. Well, yeah, he isn't one already. So, so we wanted it to be a developmental yeah. role. Nothing but wrong one, with development. Right. No, nothing wrong with it. But we didn't have any concept of a developmental role for a woman. Right, right. Uh, and, and so, um, or very little, I should say. Yeah. And so then we began to ask, okay, wait, if we can hire a man or a woman, well, now we're gonna, we found we had to work really hard to find the qualified female candidates, not because they weren't out there, but because we didn't even have mechanisms for identifying them. Right. Um, certainly not outside of our own church, but even within our own church, we, we didn't have a lot of on-ramps for these women to even be yep. identified, but we've worked on that a ton. Yep. Uh, but just basically asking, oh, has this role always been um, filled by a man or even something that we gave to as a pastor elder role just because that was just sort of our reflex action? Or is it something that could be done by either a man or a woman? Right. The role itself, not the office. Correct. Yes. Correct. Uh, just to be clear about that. Um, and so, uh, but so we have men and women who serve yeah. in the office of minister mm-hmm. here, men and mm-hmm. women, qualified men and women who serve in the office of minister here, yeah. minister being distinct from pastor elder. Yep. So minister we're basically deacon. saying elder deacon yeah. to, to use categories yes. that, yep. that men, uh, qualified men hold the office of elder and could also hold the office of deacon. Qualified women hold the office of deacon. We use that term minister interchangeably. Yeah. Yeah. And for us, for all of our Presbyterian friends, minister does not mean to us what it no. means to you. Right. Yes. That's, <laughs> that's why I said deacon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. An, an important caveat yeah. there. So, there, so there, uh, can, um, let me just, let's just get granular here because I think this will really be helpful for yeah, people. Sure. Can um, uh, a female uh, staffer supervise male employees? Yes. Yeah. Wh- mm-hmm. Why not? Right? Yeah, right. why not? Yeah, why not? We don't see any reason why not. Right, because leadership's not synonymous with eldership. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so uh, do we allow, uh, uh, who gets to preach on Sundays? qualified men who either hold the office of elder or we would say have been authorized to meet that role right. and to, to operate in that role functionally mm-hmm. like self-authorized like i just think i'm a great guy well we've we've let you uh, operate on that <laughs> assumption <laughs> you are a great guy set myself up for that yeah. thank you mm-hmm. no yeah you know uh the elders have yeah. recognized and said we're authorizing this person into this role yeah done in secrecy or are those people put before those the church people are put before the church of course 21 day process yeah. uh so that if there's something that isn't known about this person that needs to be known the church can make it known to us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, okay, so uh, qualified men who have been authorized, essentially mm-hmm. who are, have been deemed elder qualified, both from a character place, a gifting place, mm-hmm. and an aspirational place, are saying like, yes, that individual. Yep. Um, uh, can uh, m- Who can teach mixed gendered groupings outside of the corporate gathering? Both men and women can, yeah. because there are non-elders who are teaching in those environments. So if we were going to say this is an environment where an elder must do it, then it's going to be an elder. But if there are non-elders who are teaching in those environments, we believe that it's open to both men and to women. So, for example, one of those environments would be one of our core classes. If right. we're teaching a core class on the story of scripture or how to read the Bible or church history, that a man or a woman could teach that class mm-hmm. because we don't think it's an authoritative teaching that is synonymous with the way an elder would, would be teaching in that class. The training program is another example jen's taught there elizabeth is taught there caroline smiley is taught yep. there and we hope to get to get many more so those are environments where we would say this this does not require an elder's uh kind of authoritative teaching right. it is available to both and i just want to even highlight this this is this is where the controversy is yes i mean this is just to put our, our mm-hmm. thumb on it like mm-hmm. this this is what we're saying is that we are saying that we think there's a different there's different kinds of teaching and in the context of, of the local church and there's different kinds of authority uh within the context of the local church and we've basically said that this is it this is 
is a different kind of environment. Our home groups would be similar to this, that this is not an authoritative teaching environment where doctrine is going forward in the same way it would from a Sunday morning. Yep. It's still instructive. It's still informing the life of the well, church. And certainly everything that's being taught is in submission to the doctrine that has Absolutely. been set by sure. the elders. By the elders yeah. on Sunday mm-hmm. or in position papers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I actually think that the reason why this is uh, why this gets mixed up is two things. Like the reason why somebody might go from, uh, okay, uh, well, if women can't preach on Sundays, they shouldn't teach to any mixed gender gathering of adult men mm-hmm. uh, in the life of a church, uh, instructing in the Bible or sound doctrine or any of those things. I think that fundamentally misunderstands two things. One, well, let's say three things. I got three things I want to say about this. One, um, the uh, question around what is preaching in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. That's one. Two, the uh, the way that preaching, uh, oh, it's a, I really think it's a weak view of the preaching event itself. There is, that, that is so important to right. say. So there is a... Why don't uh, you preach for a second on that? Well, I, so <laughs> when, you, when you say that, um, that there is no difference... I think you've automatically weakened the uniqueness of the preaching event. And by preaching event, I mean that there is, in the life of a body, there is a moment, there is an event, and, I, and this is gonna get to my, I'm going to have to shade to my third point to make it there, but that the Spirit is gathering with his people in the corporate gathering in a way that is unique among the gatherings of the church. Mm-hmm. I think that's principally tied to my third point here, which is the intimate connection between the preaching of the word and the observance of the table. Mm-hmm. And so the part the, the architecture here is that I typically think that when you, uh, that those who make very little distinction between the uniqueness of the preaching event and the corporate worship service in a local church and any other mixed gender teaching environment have, if they really mind the depths there, a weak view of the preaching event itself, the uniqueness of it, and probably what I would say is a malnourished view of the supper of the observance of the supper and of the elders role in fencing the table in the observance of the supper, which I think that that's, that, that it's been, certainly there's an intimate connection in scripture. I think we're seeing that in first Corinthians. There's an intimate connection between what it actually means to be a member of a church and to be a part of the gathered fellowship and the table and the preaching of God's word. And then that is certainly borne witness throughout the history of the church. So that for me is like where when somebody's like, okay, there's no difference. Women shouldn't be teaching on Sundays. And if they shouldn't be teaching on Sundays there because it's only elders, they shouldn't teach anywhere else. I go, well, I think you actually have an ecclesiology problem. Okay, but I got to say this. Go. Again, we're talking about preaching. And most of the women who are listening are like, blah, blah, blah. I don't care. Right. Right. Like the, the men want the primary issue to be whether who women can teach. And the women are like, the more you spend time focusing on that, the more permission you have to ignore all of the other places where we could be serving Mm -hmm. and all of the other things that we can be, like not every woman has a teaching gift. There Mm -hmm. are some of us who do. And so for me, this has always been something I've had to run up against, even though just cards on the table, all I've ever wanted to do is teach women the Bible. Mm -hmm. That's it. And you would be amazed how hard it has been to just teach women the Bible in the local church. And so that's what I'm saying here is like many of the women who are listening right now are like, I can't even start a women's Bible study at my church. And you think I'm worried about preaching on Sunday? Well, but but I do think it's symptomatic. I I don't mean to dismiss what you're saying. It's an important conversation, but I think it tends to suck all the air out of the room in these conversations to the point that women cannot even do the things that are obviously available Mm. to them. I agree. The logic employed though, is uh, uh, a man 
only men can be leaders in the life of a church. The primary expression of leadership is teaching or yeah. preaching. Yeah. Because that's the primary expression of leadership, we don't want to create space or allow that elsewhere because it's an expression of leadership. It even gets correlated to the academy or Bible college right. as well. No, we're not the church. We're not the church. We're, not the ch- we're here to serve the church. We're not preaching. Right. But no women can teach here because it's kind of like we're pastoring. Exactly. That's... Yeah. That is a fundamentally it's the, it's the flawed kind argument. of preaching or the kind of pastoring that, that exactly. kills. Yes. Kills. So so if somebody if somebody has already made the connection that really only men should be leading and that preaching or teaching is the maybe primary expression of said leadership in the life of a local church, then the the trickle down effect of that is not just that women can't preach on Sundays even though it's exegetically tenuous uh, uh, and we've landed in a place that we have because we think that's where we're going to land. But because uh, if women can't preach on Sundays, they shouldn't preach anywhere else mm-hmm. because it's an expression of leadership. Or open, again, not even to use the word preach, just open God's word. Yes. And mm-hmm. yeah, it, I had someone ask me, and this was a kind, earnest person who wanted to learn, asked me a few weeks ago, he said, a woman shared her testimony uh, and, and, and she read from the scripture when she was sharing her testimony. Is that okay? Yeah. You know, because, and I said, and so I just said to him, well, if you were sharing your testimony, would you read from the scriptures? And he's like, oh yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I said, and so then because you're a man, it makes it okay for you to open the scriptures when giving your testimony because she's a woman, she's not. Well, immediately it's clear to him. He's like, oh, oh, I didn't even realize what I was saying. Yeah. Saying when mm-hmm. I said like, who wants to share their testimony without appealing to the witness of scripture? Yeah. And so I think that's, it, it, it just gets really bogged down. And I do think that the first impulse when people begin to look at this issue um, is, to, is, is actually ends up in their concern to think through issues around women. Mm-hmm. Their, their first impulse is then to protect spaces for men. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so you have to really ask yourself, okay, hang on, hang on. Let's, let's stop about protecting, stop, stop the protecting men um, idea for a second and just say, but what, what could could we be overlooking yeah. in that moment? It's yeah. good. It's good. So, okay, we've said a lot here, and there's more. I mean, honestly, I feel like we've barely touched this. Yeah, we mm-hmm. there, there is a uh, there is a, t- a position paper mm-hmm. that you can find on mm-hmm. tvcresources.net mm-hmm. that'll give you more substance here. You can find uh, just there the, are two. Just to be clear, okay. there's one that's that's longer, that's yep. more exhaustive that you, you could read if you want. But we have a five page paper that I'd really I think it's five or six. Whatever is a shorter paper. Kind of hits the practical. Yeah, implications. we basically tried to summarize some of the the exegetical conclusions we come to. Mm-hmm. Has like affirmations and denials, policy, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So let's. Uh, let, I think we need to kind of land with two things. One, I want to come back to situating complementarianism in this conversation uh, in, in the, the appropriate place mm-hmm. um, because it's been over the uh, at least recently it's been over accentuated its place in Christian orthodoxy so there, so there's that so let's talk a little bit about the kind of healthy spectrum the, uh, of complementarianism that like hey we are going to apply this differently we're even going to interpret some passages differently um, but we can still share fellowship right yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the ironies. I think one of the most beautiful parts of the evangelical movement over the last few years is embodied in conferences or events or theological movements that have tried to understand that we can be more ecumenical over secondary or third tier issues. So issues of baptism, cessationism or continuationism, eschatology will come together for the gospel for those kinds of things. But when it comes to complementarianism, we're drawing lines of demarcation. Mm-hmm. And what we're trying to say here specifically with complementarity is that we can still come together uh, for the sake of the gospel 
in terms of being complementarian and working together for the sake of mission and discipleship in the life of the local church. We have to. We have to, because mission depends on it. And so there will be people who are further to the right than our position on complementarity and people who are further to the left, and that's okay. We want to work with both. That's what we mean by a generous kind of complementarity is that we had to make a decision for what it looked like here that might not be the decision that you make at your church, and we still want to work with you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I think... I think that's a great way to think about this in terms of the conversation that's going on between people that are talking about it. Let me let me try to speak for a moment to somebody who isn't really <clears throat> who's not actually super interested in this like the the technical parts of this conversation, but who's maybe caught wind about this mm-hmm. or has seen it come across. Uh, one of the the things that concerns me about having this conversation uh, in the way that it's been had recently is that it can drive out, it can so narrow what it means to be a complementarian that anytime somebody hears, oh, we're a complementarian church, they go, well, this is what you mean by complementarianism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a real fear that there are going to be uh, godly gifted women who would be faithful participants, influential participants, men and women for that matter, faithful participants in the life of a local church who are going to... Uh, uh, who, because of the loudest voices, are going to mistake complementarianism for what we think is merely one expression, mm-hmm. and 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 frankly, an unhelpful expression. Although we would partner, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think we're all trying to deal with our own consciences, you know, and uh, before this, before the Lord on this. And uh, the question that I think faces a lot of people who are dealing with this is: Is the church that I'm in in a place that? I, I can do ministry yeah. right um, here that I can that I can be a part. Uh, you know, it's kind of like when when we do our membership class and we're like, hey, you don't have to agree with this particular thing right. um, to be a member of our church, but it might make it really burdensome or hard or weird for you to stay here over the long term if you don't. And so I think that's the question a lot of people are asking is like, so where does my church land on this? And is that livable for me just in terms of being able to contribute to the life of the church? And then if the answer is no, it's not maybe livable for me, then the next question is, do I think this is a conversation that's in process or a conversation that's fixed? And um, and if it's a conversation that's fixed, then then, yeah, that is going to be something you're going to have to think hard about. If it's a conversation that's in process, then you... You can ask, you know, is this a conversation I can help shape um, respectfully? Uh, And and there are not easy answers. You know, there if you're, it's one thing if you're on a church staff and you're wondering if you should stay there. But if you're the average church member and this is the nearest church to your house and it's the one that's most biblically faithful, you know, in a radius, then then often it means that we will bear with one another in love on issues like this. Mm -hmm. True. True. I like the you. I like the term you use of Christian conscience yeah. or, or a conscience before the Lord. Uh, and I guess I just keep maybe I'm you know a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal here. But Christian liberty is a really important category for for doing Christian theology. Yeah. And it's this idea that on secondary or third tier issues, where your conscience is bound, mine doesn't have to be, and I shouldn't bind your mm-hmm. conscience where mine is. Mm-hmm. Christian liberty does not apply to things like Trinitarianism or Christology or doctrines of the exclusivity of Christ or biblical authority. It does apply to secondary issues like baptism or eschatology or here complementarity or even not even just complementarianism, the specific localized contextual application. And so it's okay. Even if you land in a slightly different place than perhaps your pastors uh, do or, or, uh, 
you know, even team members that you're working with, mm-hmm. or even just, uh, you know, if you're working in a nonprofit ministry, or, or even if you're just if trying to be a faithful Christian and understand what, what, what God's word says here, this is not an issue where your conscience needs to be bound to where ours is or, or vice versa. Yeah. I think what we would push you on, though, I think what we would push everyone in this conversation on, though, is to, to come at this and other issues like this from a place of love versus fear. Yes. Yeah. Because we found that um, fear was the big motivator mm-hmm. in, in so many, not just this conversation, but in other conversations as well. And so if your first impulse is, ooh, you know. Mm, slippery slope. Yeah. Slippery yeah. Slope. In, instead of, wait, what, it, what could this look like? Mm-hmm. You know, instead of like, instead of asking what must this never look like right what if you started asking but what should this look like mm-hmm. right like what is the beautiful vision yeah. not what are the ditches but what does the road look like yeah uh, it changes the conversation i think that's probably the biggest embodied lesson that we've learned at tvc is that the narrative of fear that is so often kind of propped up wasn't true for right. us that there actually was a better story to, to not only be told in a paper, but to be lived to live in, in the right. life of the local church. And goodness, it has been so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Like it's been really, really worth it to push through that narrative of fear and to ask the question you're asking, what can this look like? It really can. Mm-hmm. It can look like brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers working together for the sake of the mission of God in a place like Flower Mound, Texas or Louisville or Richardson, Texas for yep. you, Kyle. It really can happen. Yep. Well, hey, I'm glad that we did this. For more information, you can look into the show notes in the podcast description. We'd be honored for you to leave us a podcast review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. You can find us online at trainingthechurch.com. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Knowing Faith. We'll see you next time. Grace and peace. On our next episode, we're going to be talking about when David sings his story. See you next time. Grace and peace.